Amen. Thank you, Aaron, and musicians and choir. Thank you for reminding us that when we have Christ, we have everything, that we need nothing else. And Christ plus anything is, is not worth as much as just Christ, period. That in order to be saved, we don't need Christ and anything else. We don't need Christ and good works. We don't need Christ and to have it all together and to know what premillennialism and dispensationalism is. We don't need anything else but to know Jesus Christ. Thank you. And be born in him again. Amen? Amen. Uh, it's great to be in the Lord's house again. Uh, last Easter, uh, the 9 o'clock service just went flawlessly. Our, our uh, tech team and musicians and everybody had prepared so well. And uh, then at 1030, I uh, had some technical difficulties. And uh, I think in the span of about 60 seconds, I said something about Henry's uh, mullet. And then I said something about his hockey hair. Then I said something about uh, you can't contain me and, and get this microphone standing out of my face. So I apologize for how uh, unprofessional maybe uh, last week was. Uh, someone in the Sunday school class today, Dr. Hickson and, and Becky's class said, I think Nathan was stressed out last week. And I think uh, maybe that's true, but it's, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you all today and back in the book of Isaiah. And, and this study, someone even uh, remarked today how timely the lessons in Isaiah have been. And it's not like I planned that. It's just something the Lord has done and how his word is always relevant and how it never returns empty. How God's word goes out and accomplishes the, the point that it goes out to accomplish. It always achieves what it sets out to achieve. So let's let the word of God work on our hearts today as we read Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. It's a beautiful chapter. It's kind of a, a summary uh, chapter. It's only six verses long, but it's the conclusion of this first section of Isaiah. And we're going to recap just briefly where we've been so far. Ever since chapter 5, really, we've been introduced to this looming threat that the mighty Assyrian Empire is marching west across the, the, the Mesopotamian fertile crescent, and they're just taking out city after city. They're conquering kingdoms. And pretty soon, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, which is the southern kingdom, were going to face a choice. They were going to be confronted with the choice of who to trust. With this mighty empire about to attack them, would they put their trust in an earthly king, perhaps the king of Assyria? Or would they put their trust in the king of all creation, the Lord God who reigns on high? Who would they trust in to deliver them? And Isaiah has been speaking to both kingdoms about their failures in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and 9. We, we saw how both Israel and Judah had uh, chosen earthly kings over and over again, and they've rejected and neglected the sovereign king of all creation. And the prophet has been calling these people back to repentance. He's been describing how far short they've fallen of God's standard of perfection. And he's promised that therefore judgment and, and discipline will come on them as a result of choosing their ways over God's perfect ways. And yet God would not give them up. God remained faithful to his beloved children. And he promised to preserve a small group of them called a remnant 
And in his grace, he would establish this small but faithful band of believers into what he intended God's people to be all along. This remnant's going to flourish as God establishes them. And even though they face the existential threat of war and of uh, being taken out and and taken captives uh, by the Assyrians, God's grace is still going to win. The, The triumph of the promise of hope and grace that God would give them was always there. So two weeks ago on Palm Sunday, we read how Isaiah prophesied in chapter 11 about a king who would come to God's own people, a king unlike any other. Yes, he would come from the line of kings, from the, the, the root of Jesse, David's line, but unlike old Ahaz and all these terrible kings of both Israel and Judah, this king would be righteous and faithful. He would be right all the time. And he would be right on time. You could depend on this king unlike any earthly king. And he would change everything because he would be the one, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who would come to rescue God's people. And that rescue was good news not only for God's people, but for the whole world. And this whole month, we're going to be looking at God of the nations. And we have some college students who are from Honduras. We have uh, a deacon who's from Guatemala. We have a few internationals in our church, and it's so important to remember that our God is the God of all creation, of all the nations. There is no one ethnicity that best defines what Christians are or should be, but one day every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather around the throne of heaven, displaying the multifaceted glory of the image of God in humanity. So it's important to remember that God is the one behind the scenes working out his purposes worldwide. And here in chapter 12, we're going to see how God's grace has been preserving not only his own people, but that grace is going to go out to the whole world, to all the nations. And chapter 12 instructs us how to respond to that grace. This amazing grace that God pours out on the world How should we respond to it? And chapter 12 is really a song. A lot of scholars think this is a hymn. This is a corporate song to be sung together. And it's a picture. It's a foretaste of what a faithful community of God's people might one day look like when they're fully captivated by God's amazing grace. You know, music has long been used to to paint a picture of a better day to come. I think about all the civil rights songs of the the 60s, the the, the protest songs, but not just the protest songs, but songs that painted a, a better day. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. And that wasn't just about civil rights. That was about God's people by his grace triumphing. It's a great song of hope. It's a song of that better day to come. And that has power, doesn't it? Because it inspires us to, to dream together of a better future. And that's what Isaiah chapter 12 does for us. It encourages us as God's people to dream together of a better way forward, a better future. It's a song of hope. It's a God-given vision 
of what life could be like and will be like someday once God's people submit to his reign and rule in their heart of hearts. So let's allow it to inspire us today as we live into the reality that this song projects into the future. Let's, let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able to. As I read Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, hear now the word of the Lord. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I've long argued for the rationale to write a southern translation of the Bible because it's very confusing in English how you, the second person plural, can be either singular or plural. We southerners have figured out a brilliant way to differentiate by saying you, singular, and y'all, plural. Or if you're from New Jersey like Ron is, you say yous or yous guys like Ron does, which I just giggle every time he says it. But we need to know in Scripture who's God talking to. Is he talking to you? Is he talking to me individually? Or is he talking to us corporately? You know, in our narcissistic tendencies, we all do this. We tend to follow our culture and read every you that's in the Bible as what? Singular. We make it about me. But something very important is happening in our text for today, grammatically, in the Hebrew. I took three semesters of Hebrew and did not enjoy any of it. Uh, <laughs> Greek was fun for me, but Hebrew doesn't make any sense. Uh, I, my wife's better at languages than I am. She learned Hebrew better than I did, I think, in seminary. But the, the point here is that the, the yous in Isaiah 12 are different. In our first two verses, God is talking to you. He's talking to me individually. And then in verse 3, there's a change. God's going to start saying y'all in chapter 3. And the reason that in the first two verses, the you is singular is because it's about entering into salvation, which is a personal experience. It's an individual experience for you and me to be saved. No one can do it for you. You must have a personal encounter with the living God and move from death to life by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Dr. Sherman preached on this in February when Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 6, remember that? He had an individual encounter with the living God. And Dr. Sherman asked us, have you, you singular, had a personal encounter 
with the living God. We all must wrestle with that. We must understand, have we personally experienced the high and holy, lifted up God of all creation? If you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. It was good. So the emphasis on this first part of the song, there's, we're going to see three parts of the song. The emphasis is on your own personal testimony, your confident personal assurance in the experience that you personally, individually have had. Look at, back at, first, uh, at verse 1 in this singular context. It says, you individually will say in that day, I personally will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You know, we all have a problem. We have a very serious problem. You and I must confront the reality of the holiness of God. What I mean by that is that God is so completely other than. He's so completely high and lifted up. The, the God who made you and me is the same God who is so holy, so perfect in power, so much above all the profane things of this world, so beautiful in glory that he cannot abide sin. He cannot be true in his nature and abide sin. Everything in God's essence is set so strongly against uh, sin that the Bible talks about God's wrath over 200 times in the Bible. That's a problem for us because we were, as David says, born sinful. You know, it'd be interesting to poll Christians and, and ask them, what, what, what aspect of your salvation do you find most amazing? What is it about being saved that's so incredible? What shocks you the most about how the Lord saved you? Isaiah might say, God was our former enemy who's now come to comfort us. The high and holy God who cannot stand sin embraces us with open arms. How can that be? It's because of Jesus. You know, we tend to get frustrated when God doesn't go along with our agenda, when God doesn't do the things that we think he ought to do. But the truth is that God is lavishing the riches of his grace on us and on this world each and every day, comforting us through Jesus Christ with his grace, with his amazing, undeserved, unmerited grace poured out for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His glorious presence then with us, his perfect provision and peace that passes understanding are all ours in Christ. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The wrath of God was on us as sinful people who were born sinful into a sinful world and yet through Jesus have been given the perfect righteousness that Jesus earned and he has taken all our sin and shame and guilt upon himself and nailed it to a tree. For God to remain both just and holy and deal with sin, his condemnation then fell not on us but on Jesus Christ. You know, it's not nice to say that these days. I have a lot of very progressive Christian friends and they don't talk about substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died for us. You can't say that nowadays in a lot of places, but it's really important 
in, in Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, to remember that Jesus did die in our place. I know it's not a fun thing to talk about, but it's true that a holy God cannot abide sin, and therefore he forged a way to deal with it through his own perfect son, the spotless lamb. We need to, to hold on to that peace without glorifying violence or, or saying that God is a vengeful, wrathful, petty God. None of that is true. But it is true that he is holy. And it is true that sin is not. We therefore receive comfort from God now, not as a righteous judge of our shortcomings, but as a good father who runs to embrace us and give us everything, put a ring on our finger and a robe on us, and throw a party. That leads each of us who have experienced salvation by grace through faith in Jesus to individually give thanks to the Lord. There's a sequence here to the salvation, right? First of all, we see that there was divine anger, righteous, rightful anger against sin. And that anger is then removed and replaced with divine comfort. Divine anger has been replaced with divine comfort. And then comes a personal experience of a divine Savior. Look at verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. We are saved not by anything we do, but a Savior who rescues us. And that leads to number four, faith without fear. Look at the rest of verse 2. I will trust and will not be afraid. You know, fear has no place in a Christian's life. Fear is great for getting elected or for raising money, but it's terrible for faith. It's terrible for faith, right? As Christians, perfect love casts out fear, 1 John tells us, that in perfect love there is no fear. That leads, number five, to the Lord becoming our source of strength and joy. Look at the rest of verse two. The Lord God is my strength and my song, it makes me want to burst out into song. I'm not Bill Sherman, so I'm not going to sing, but <laughs> the joy of God makes you want to sing. You just can't contain it. Denise is a singer. She's nodding her head. She sings. If I had a voice like Denise, I'd sing all the time. Finally, the sequence ends with, with number six, an assurance of salvation in and through the Lord. He has become my salvation. It says that he is my salvation at the beginning, and then at the end it says he's become my salvation. He's proven himself. I can't know if you're saved, if you're going to heaven or hell. I can't. I can see evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you, but that's something between you and God. Thank God I don't have to be the judge. But I can know for myself, and you can know for yourself, that you have been saved by grace through faith. That assurance that we have, that gives us this un. Uh, breakable, unshakable hope in the midst of very hard times. You know, it's easy for us in our fallen flesh to wallow in self-pity. Hannah Norton, used to be Norton, is with us today. We've been praying for her. She went to Lipscomb for a year, moved back home to Knoxville, got diagnosed with cancer, rare form of cancer at 19. And it, it didn't look good. We were, we were praying. We were all devastated. She'd been attending our church for a semester and, and now the, the Lord has led her to a new husband. She's in remission. He's provided for her. But in the face of very scary times, it's easy for me, I don't know about you, to, to wallow in self-pity, to be a victim. Oh, poor me. 
I can't believe this is happening to me. Oh, woe is me. Life is so hard for me. You know people like that? They're not fun to be around, are they? It's not fun to live that way either. To wallow in self-pity. It's a terrible way to live. Contrast that person to someone like Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain. I'm, I'm way too young, right? That was in the 50s when that came out, but I've seen clips of it. This guy walks out into the rain. He's got his umbrella and a big goofy grin on his face. And what does he do? He takes his umbrella down, folds it up, and he starts dancing. And he's, you know, twirling. I'm not going to dance either or sing, but uh, <laughs> he starts twirling his umbrella and he's just splashing in the puddles. And people are looking at him like he's crazy or like he's not very bright. Something's off. But he's got this joy inside of him and he can't contain it. And he's laughing at the clouds. And he's, he knows that no matter what happens, he's going to be okay. That's the kind of faith that we have in Christ. We have that compulsion to break into song, even when the world is scurrying by with newspapers over their heads. Oh, this rain is terrible. I hate this rain. We have joy, even in the midst of a fallen world. We have a holy delight that comes from knowing in our heart of hearts that we are saved by grace through faith. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Isaiah is echoing Moses' song that's recorded in, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Remember, Moses is singing this song in the midst of these weak Israelites, slaves, who've run away from their masters and who are in between the ocean and an army. And, and he's singing, God is good. He's my strength and song. He's going to do something great. And of course, he delivers them. And it didn't matter whatever they were facing because of the confidence of their salvation that permeates really every page of the Bible. Romans 8.31, right? What, what then shall we say to all these things that God has done? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Therefore, we can stop living like victims and start singing, even in the face of very real and scary things. I'm not downplaying cancer. Okay, I'm not downplaying coronavirus. I'm not downplaying war and poverty and the situation at our southern border right now. I mean, all these terrible things in our world. I'm not saying they're insignificant. I'm saying that as real and as scary as they are, the perfect power of God is made perfect in what? In our weakness. <laughs> if this church thrives and grows, it's not because of me. It's not because of Dr. Sherman. It's because of the Lord God. And in our, the weaker we are, the more his power is made perfect. 
The more unable we are to handle things, the more he is able. It's a beautiful paradoxical truth. Okay, to enter into salvation is a personal experience, but to enjoy it is a communal one. Point number two, that's the second part of the, the song. Our communal enjoyment together. That's why we gather today is to celebrate together what God has done for us. And in our culture of individualism, where the idol of self is elevated above everything else, this is a weird concept, this communal enjoyment. Verse 3, Isaiah switches the pronoun to plural. He says, with joy, y'all will draw water. Use, Ron, use will draw water from the wells, plural, of salvation. You're going to be satisfied with fresh, cool water in a dry and, and desert land. That's the key verse, really, in this whole chapter. It describes a spirit of praise that floods our hearts together as the family of Christ. The Christian faith, you know, isn't about being good or, or being right. The Christian faith is about the overflow of God's goodness from our lives into the world. It's supposed to be about the fullness of God's grace that's been poured out into our hearts and now spills over into the, the ladies from Begin Anew and the men, into the people at the Hope Clinic, into the National Rescue Mission, into Room in the Inn, into the people that we build houses for at Habitat, into the people at the food pantry, into one another at Sunday school this morning, or life groups as we call them now. It, it spills out from God to others through us. When the Bible talks about God's grace coming to our world, it uses the image often of streams in the desert, of water in a parched place. We're going to see Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, where God says, I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That's grace. David, the psalmist, cried out in uh, Psalm 63, verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is the ancient Near East. A lot of you have been to Israel. You know it's rocky and arid. It's a dry climate. And the prospect of pulling up endless buckets of pure, refreshing water, drinking it deeply, pouring it over your head, splashing each other with it. I got three kids who love to splash, right? That's the image here. It's this life-giving water, literally life-giving. Look at John. Remember John chapter 7? What did Jesus say in the temple? Jesus told them, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're not talking about a, a pond of piety. We're not talking about stagnant water of being good and right and these kind of things. We're talking about a rushing river, whitewater rapids that you just want to get on and raft and, and have a blast. Through Jesus, God gives us himself. It's not a stagnant, boring faith, but a rushing river of grace that carries us along. And that leads to our final section. Point three, the, the third part of the song is about our communal testimony then to the world. It's not just so that we can sit here and celebrate what God's done for us together, but it's supposed to spill out of this place. Look at verse four. 
You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Again, that you in in verse four is y'all. It's plural. You all are going to do this. The message of God's salvation now goes out from one people group to all the people groups. You know, Jesus in the Great Commission is not giving us some like brand new revolutionary teaching when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's been God's plan from the beginning. The picture here that Isaiah is painting is where the community of God's people tell the whole world how good and how great he is. Remember that as Christians, we are Abrahamic. That means not only do we have Abraham as our great, great, great grandfather spiritually, not only have we been grafted into the family of God, but we've been given the same mission that Abraham got from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you can enjoy your life and your retirement. No, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Praise God, that's our mission still, to be a conduit of God's blessing into the whole world. You may say, well, that's an old mission that the Israelites had. Everything changed when Jesus came. Yes, that's true, but it's still us who are Abraham's heirs. We are Abrahamic. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's, period. You're heirs according to the promise. The mission is still the same for us to tell the world what God has done. We shouldn't keep it for ourselves or contain it. We shouldn't be able to. Look at how Isaiah closes this song with a vision of praise for the world. Sing praises to the Lord for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, the remnant. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Many people think of religion as restrictive and and boring, but that's not what we see here. The kingdom of God is a party. It's a celebration. Even those old, you know, staunch Puritans who were very restrictive, John Trapp, who was an English uh, Puritan in the 1600s, said, no duty is more pressed in both testaments than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. It's no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. Jesus prayed for us, for his followers, what? That our joy would what? Be made complete and perfect. John Oswald says in his commentary that Isaiah is picturing a day yet to be when a restored people will in hilarious celebration delight in their only asset, the Holy One. All I have is Christ. All we have is Christ. The peoples of the earth are going to celebrate that they only have one thing. Verse 6 says that the Holy One is in their midst. When we have God, we have everything through Christ. So the question then before us is threefold. We have three closing questions I want to pose to us. First, the same question Dr. Sherman asked. Do 
ever have a personal encounter to tell about. You can't experience the rest of these blessings until you've had a personal encounter with the living God that changes everything. You are not able to encounter the high and holy God and walk away the same. You will be changed. Have you gone from death to life by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, that that leads to the second question. Are we enjoying him together? Christians should be the most joyful people, but yet often they're the most miserable people that you meet. Christians have reason to celebrate. Are we eager then to come together to celebrate the awesomeness of our Lord and what he has done, the wells of salvation that are just begging us to come and have a big old water fight on the lawn of God's grace and to just splash each other with streams of living water, to go on that raging river in a raft and just have a blast. If so, that leads to the third question. Are we corporately letting the world know? Are we letting them know? Are we eager to see the nations come to know the goodness of our God and the glorious things that he has done, not for America, not for white people, but for the nations? Are we eager to see the world become what God intends for it to be through his people, the Abrahamic offspring, the church now that is rooted in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we see these three key questions today. We know that you have called us to be this remnant, this special group that bears out your goodness and grace to the rest of the world. God, forgive us for just hoarding your grace for ourselves. Forgive us for finding the things of this world more compelling than your gospel of grace and goodness. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today or watching this online or on TV that has not had a personal encounter with you, the living God, that you would draw them to yourself right now, that they would submit to you in grace and find that your goodness is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today to celebrate together the awesomeness of who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do, to celebrate the hope that we have that one day all things will be made new, And that we won't need programs like Begin Anew or Room in the Inn or Habitat for Humanity because you will come to build your dwelling place with us here and we will reign with you in glory forever. God, I pray that you would help us to hold out that hope to a world that desperately needs it. May we remember that every time we gather here to celebrate who you are, that we leave commissioned and sent out into this world to be your hands and feet, to tell of your goodness and grace, to show others, to point them to the good news of who you are in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of these three important questions throughout this week as we play our part in your good, redemptive purposes for this world. We thank you that you are high and exalted, that you are over all the nations, that nothing takes you by surprise and that you are working all things together for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.
There's a decision to make today. If you're here today and you've never had that personal encounter with God, maybe you say, I'm ready. I want to commit everything I am to Christ. All I want is Christ, and I'm ready to turn my back on everything else. If that's you today, then come talk to me. I'll be up here at the front. I'd love to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the rest of eternity. Maybe you need to be a part of what's going on at Woodmont. You say, I'm in. I want to be a member. I want to join here. We believe in church membership and being an official part of the family of faith. If that's you today, I encourage you to come talk to me as well. If maybe you just realize that you've not been excited about Christianity in a long time, that your faith has kind of been dead for a long time and stagnant, that you find the things of Jesus to be uncompelling and not exciting, and you're ready to jump back into the raging river of God's grace today. If that's you, then you can come pray with me or just come to the altar or whatever it is you need to do during this time. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response together.